Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Thea Brooke-Knight, and I am the Associate Director for Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. And I also have the pleasure of moderating today's discussion. Mandated disclosure is so ubiquitous in our society that we have a special term for it, the fine print. And how we use this phrase is very telling. The fine print is that block of text that no one reads. It was hidden in the fine print, you might say, or I don't know, maybe it was in the fine print. No one reads it, except first-year law students, and they're insufferable. <laughs> Reading Professor, Professor Ben-Shahar's book caused me to think back to my own first year of law school. It was, in fact, Professor Ben-Shahar who taught me contracts in my first year at the University of Michigan. I was taught, as law students are across the country, that you should read contracts that you sign. And that if you do not consent to any of the terms, you should strike them out and write in new terms to be negotiated with the other party. You can imagine the new law student dutifully reading and editing the fine print on her car rental agreement she signs during her Christmas break following her first semester of law school. Or her classmate, who similarly edits the disclosure on software he wants to download, emailing the new terms to Microsoft and waiting vainly for a response. I told you, law students are insufferable. The rest of us, including those who have actually graduated from law school, don't read all or even any of the disclosures we see every day. We don't want to be that person holding up the line at the car rental counter. And yet, these disclosures are being carefully, even painstakingly drafted by very expensive lawyers. Some regulatory regimes, such as that governing the sale of securities, are built on a foundation of mandatory disclosures. But what do these disclosures do? Are they worth the effort and money poured into their creation? Today, we have three distinguished guests to discuss these questions. Our first guest, Omri Ben-Shahar, is the Leo and Eileen Herzl Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School, where he is also the Kearney Director of the Coase Sandor Institute for Law Economics. In addition to having taught insufferable law students like me at the University of Chicago, uh, University of Michigan Law School, he has also taught at Tel Aviv University and was a member of Israel's antitrust court and also clerked at the Supreme Court of Israel. His writing focuses on contract law and consumer protection, and he is the co-author of an article on the unintended effects of government-subsidized weather insurance that appears in the current issue of Cato's Regulation Magazine. Um, and is the co-author of More Than You Wanted to Know, The Failure of Mandated Disclosure, which we are here to discuss today. Our second speaker, Paul Atkins, is currently the CEO of Potomac Global Partners. He has previously served two terms as a commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And following the financial crisis, he was appointed to serve as a member of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. His with me. <laughs> I wasn't a member, I was a staff. But um, his career also includes several years on the staffs of two SEC chairmen and time spent in private practice with the law firm Davis Polk. Our third speaker will be Andrew Stivers, who is a deputy director at the Federal Trade Commission and oversees the consumer protection mission for the FTC. Before going to the FTC, Mr. Stivers worked for the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition as a staff economist, analyzing regulatory proposals, and then as director of the Division of Public Health Informatics and Analytics, overseeing epidemi epidemiological consumer studies and statistical data collection. It's not a word that comes up a lot of my, in my <laughs> practice. Analysis and research. 
Mr. Stivers has published research on the economics of standard setting and the regulation of language in the marketplace. So I hope you'll welcome, uh, join me in welcoming Professor Ben Shahar to the podium. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for this kind introduction and for inviting me. It's such a delight to talk to this audience and to these two distinguished uh, uh, speakers who will follow me and to discuss a topic that I've spent the last few years thinking about, uh, th thoughts that have culminated in this book titled More Than You Wanted to Know. Uh, the book uh, to kind of uh, doesn't hold back to make, uh, makes fairly uh, strong claims, and here are the claims that the book makes, and I'll try to defend each and one of them in the 20 minutes or so they have here. Uh, and the disclosure is, uh, first, it is the most common regulatory technique in the American legal landscape. It is also the least successful one, uh, least successful regulatory technique. It, uh, its success, its failures cannot be repaired. It is doomed to fail, and I will try to explain why. It cannot, for example, be improved by methods to simplify or to shorten disclosures. Nevertheless, and paradoxically, it keeps growing. The failure, which is commonly recognized, the book did not discover it, has not slowed down. And despite the dismal performance of disclosures as a regulatory technique, it has a very resilient DNA in the political landscape. And they are constantly being enacted. And finally, while not doing any benefit they are, disclosures are capable of causing harms. Not grave harms generally, small harms, but nevertheless nagging harms and sometimes, and I'll give some examples, uh, really bad harms. Okay, so here's an example. It comes from consumer credit, but I'm going to try immediately to go beyond this uh, yawn producing area of consumer disclosures. The Dodd-Frank Act decided that disclosures, like many other statutes in the past generations, tried to realize that people borrowing money, and especially for mortgage borrowing, it's not, they don't really know the terms. They make poor decisions, disastrous decisions, and partly because they did not understand what they were doing. And so the, one of the mandates was to reform the truth in lending laws, uh, not specifically just TILA, but other uh, laws that are aimed at consumer and mortgages, and to simplify, uh, improve this ugly specimen. This is an old form that comes from a, a statute called a RESPA, and this is the, the form, it's called HUD-1, an inspiring name, but it tries to summarize the terms of the mortgage. There are three to five such pages. This is the front page, but look how dense small, hardly to, difficult to, to, to understand, doesn't have any intuitive approach and any intuitive uh, for a delivery of information. So instead, the, bureau, the new Bureau, of, one of the first things the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau did is try to revise this, in fact, unite it with another form that comes from a different statute and produce instead this thing of beauty. It has the same information and look how much nicer it can be done. This is under the No Before You Owe campaign of the Bureau. bureau. Um, 
uh, this was tested in laboratory all over the country with all types of demographics and shown to, be, to give people, to make people much more competent in understanding and being able to answer uh, tests when they were asked about what are the terms of the mortgage. Now they knew. But the problem is, I, and this maybe summarizes the point of the book, is that this is not going to work, and the reason it's not going to work is this. Here are 51 different disclosures that are given, along with that improved form, to people who close on a mortgage. This is actually from my refinance of my home in Hyde Park, Chicago, a few years ago. After I refinanced, I took the, all the forms and just copied the titles. So this is a very low risk, 30-year plain vanilla loan. This is not the really high risks for people who take grave risks. They probably have far more than 51 forms. I had to sign more than 70 signatures on way, well over 100 pages. So big deal. They took number one and number three and improved them. But the Bureau, the Bureau doesn't have the authority or jurisdiction to touch anything else. This comes from other statutes from other jurisdictions, from court decisions, from many other, you know, the um, hazard insurance authorization requirements comes from probably some obscure law that somebody some, sometimes sued for some not understanding and lawmakers decided to add a particular disclosure uh, or so on and so forth. I can explain. I actually try to study each and every one. Where do they come from? Uh, just for fun. Uh, but it is uh, the point here you see is that there is, uh, we are locked in a clutter of disclosures that no, cannot be fixed, and that is the result of a story that I try to tell in uh, the book. Where is mandated disclosure, uh, excuse me, <coughs> mandated disclosure laws, what I call mandated disclosure laws is actually more than the fine print. It's all, every time lawmakers decide to enact a law, that builds on the following idea. We want to help people make better decisions by requiring that the more sophisticated party to a transaction give them information. These are, this is a, a module, a template for lawmaking that exists in many contexts. We sometimes call them sunshine laws. I like this term because it really reflects the ideal that was uh, invented by Louis Brandeis who said about 100 years ago that sunlight is the best of disinfectant. And that kind of led to the creation of then the FTC and later the uh, SEC and other agencies and laws that implement this idea. Give people information, shine the light, and that will disinfect our uh, you know, uh, public life. There are many other types of re regimes that come within this paradigm. An important one that the book looks at is the, the rule of informed consent in health treatments. It has nothing to do with consumer decisions, nothing to do with what we call fine print or contract law. These, this is a tort doctrine that doctors, hospitals, clinics must give you information about the risks and the effects of the treatment, or else if you don't consent to the treatment with the inf having given the information, the treatment could be a tort. It's a you know, battery touching you without your consent. Consent has to be informed. For it to be informed, you have to get information. And the information, if you remember the recent visit to get a flu shot or to any other medical treatment, looks very much like fine print. Long, 
pages and pages of information about everything. And I'll give other examples, but there are many more uh, uh, examples. We can see this in every area of life and law. Of course, investor protection, securities regulation is primarily about disclosure. Consumer contracts are, this, you know, firms can write anything in the contract subject to few limits about things that cannot be too atrocious, but they have to disclose it. Hence the I accept click that we all get. You know, they deliver to us the firm, they have disclosed it. I mentioned medical relationship. Privacy protection in America is largely about disclosure. Post the notice about your privacy practice and you can do, collect any information you want other than from kids and, you know, sick people. Uh, food regulation, if there is a, you know, we think, or maybe there is a, a food epidemic or obesity epidemic in, in the U.S., and the way to help people is give them better information about nutrition to make better decisions, and so on and so forth. There are numerous other examples. I rode a taxi in uh, New York City the other day, and I saw the pass taxi passenger's bill of rights well, it turns out that bills of rights are a very common form of disclosure. We want to help people to how to, you know, make better decisions. And so uh, we put them like, you know, one to ten list of your rights as, you know, campground tenant or union member or some of the bills of rights. The people are given this uh, concise disclosure. It's kind of nice to think how that locution <laughs> bill of rights descended from its place in the U.S. Constitution to car repair and uh, campgrounds. Uh, you can think of the, uh, the Magna Carta, I think about trying the book about, you know, the, the, Ma the Magna Carta of uh, um, uh, lemon, you know, lemon, lem use car lemon laws, right? You need to know your rights and so on. But anyway, there are many such examples. I can spend the whole time but I will bore you to tears if I just, just give you the long, the full disclosure of what the disclosure <laughs> empire looks like. Why is it so ubiquitous? Because uh, uh, it addresses a real problem. People make wrong decisions, and it addresses it in a plausible way. People make bad decisions. Why? Because they did not have information. We have just diagnosed the problem, and there is an obvious solution. Give them the information. It's also, it conforms to all ideologies. One of the things I did for, in writing the book is try to look at the passage of major disclosure laws, and to my astonishment, no opposition. Even within Obamacare, one of the most you know, partisan and, and, and tightly fought uh, uh, legislative battles in the US history, there was an element that passed without both parties, bipartisan, which were the sunshine laws that, you know, physicians, providers have to provide some information and that the medic and the insurance has to be clear, you know, the terms of the insurance, the uh, open enrollment disclosures have to be made clear and simple and so on. It is simple to enact. It costs little. The government doesn't need to use budgets to free budgets for this, these kind of laws. And it's thought to be, at worst, harmless. You know, what you get so worked up about, it's not going to do any harm. Um, the, uh, 
but it doesn't work. And this is the main claim. And the book looks at social science evidence and other forms of uh, evidence from every possible, in every possible area. We spent a lot of time reading hundreds, if not more, studies. Um, it fails to, inf oftentimes it fails to deliver the information. People are not more informed. It fails to deter wrongdoing, to improve people's decisions. And most importantly, it fails to reach the goal, which is to improve social welfare. Why, does it, why is this failure so uh, uh, common? Um, and there are several things that I try to, I can go very briefly over, but we can continue to discuss it. Some are pretty obvious. It has to do with literacy and numeracy. And don't mis misunderstand, I'm not talking about people who can't read or can't do math. I'm talking about all of us. We are not literate enough in every single aspect. We, we get, to, if we want to receive a medical treatment, we, many of us are not literate in the medical information that, such that even if we get and understand the text, we don't know how to use it. It takes experience, expertise, and training to do it well. They are overloaded, uh, and that is uh, very common. That's the fine print that was mentioned before. And I have in the book a, a, an example. Can I show it here? Um, for what it looks like. So I do, you know, this is one of these uh, documents that is, is oops, subject to the rules that contract professors and contracts lawmakers think is very important, give consumers the opportunity to read. So this is the, uh, when I was trying to download a track on my iPhone a few years ago, you know, it does what happens to all of us. It said, no, you can't do it. You have to agree to the revised terms. And uh, you look at, you scroll down to the page on your little app. It was then an iPhone 3 or something like this. Not a lot of room. So it said page 1 of 56. <laughs> and uh, can go to next page or to just agree or to email it to myself, which I did, and then printed it out. And this is what it is. Do you want to help me yeah. show it? <laughs> People, I need uh, a crane to, to lift and open it. But this is the, uh, oh, we won't have room for <laughs> What would it look like for the really important decisions? Uh, the accumulation problem is something like what we saw, the 50 disclosures, but much broader. The fact we can't use disclosures because they appear in every moment of our life. One of the ways I try to do it in the book to explain this is to imagine a hypothetical day of a hypothetical consumer who decides that day to actually read all the disclosures. All of a sudden, you know, kind of remove the filters that we all rationally developed to, to live a normal life. Well, that consumer did not live a normal life. It just spent all day reading things, disclaimers of the and the like. And it was a caricature of a day that lawmakers, consumer protection lawmakers, uh, have prescribed for, for, for that consumer. Uh, there's just so much, and lawmakers uh, keep producing them that it is impossible to seriously use them in any meaningful way. There are other aspects here, and I don't want to spend too much time there, disclosure, the book, but I, 
I want to say something about behavioral biases. A big deal in today's kind of advanced smart regulation and smart disclosure is to use, to understand people's behavioral bias so as to reverse engineer against them, to make disclosures that take into account how people poor, choose poorly and kind of be prepared for that so that we can make them choose better given that this anticipation, not just disclosures, a lot of this uh, behaviorally informed regulation. I find this to be an argue, disclosure to be a very poor example for a way to use behaviorally informed regulation. If one thing that, if it teaches us one thing, if social psychology and behavioral economics teaches us one thing, it is that people don't, are not good at making complex decisions. There is a whole potpourri of biases that are afflicted and that afflict decisions and people and that keep getting discovered. Um, and so to use the one regulatory technique that relies solely on people to make the decisions, given what we know about them, just doesn't make sense. Behavioral economics is not the solution. It's the problem. Okay. And there is a great example, if I have time, I'll talk about it, how, what happened with the, 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 the disclosure of conflicts of interest. So in some, the, the problem has to do, the failure is due to a problem that cannot be solved. And that is the complexity, not of the disclosures, but of the problems, of the decisions. This is a good thing that they are complex. And they are complex because we have a lot of choices. This is, this is modernity. And... But because there are so many choices and because there are so many balls in the air every time we have to make a decision, it is impossible for people to make them well and disclosures that try to do this will become complex like the decisions themselves. Can mandated disclosure be fixed? Well, the answer by today's sophisticated disclosure rights is yes. And the deus ex machina is simplification. Simplify it. Why? Well, it's, it fails because of complexity. Let's simplify it. Here's an example from an FTC report on privacy. We know that people want privacy. They say it in surveys, but they behave as if they don't. So we have to help them figure out what's going to happen when their information is being collected. So the FTC wants more transparency to make things more easily accessible better use best practices in simplifying and providing short version, pared down version of the information. But I don't know how you can simplify the complex. Uh, what do you, you leave out some things? Well, for some people it's important. How do you simplify the accumulation problem? Which disclosures do you remove so that people, you know, we only allow to show people two disclosures a day rather than 200? How do you do that exactly? It's, our lawmakers are decentralized. There's no disclosure czar. Um, are short disclosures simpler? Actually, they are not. Sometimes the short disclosure leave things out that people have to figure out. And I, give, I can give examples later why they are actually more complicated. Um, and then there's the question whether scores, like indexes, like uh, one star, two star, three star, four star can replace disclosures, and there's great hope today that they can do so. Um, I will, we can discuss it later, but I'm very skeptical about that, and 
Uh, I have, there's no evidence so far to show that scores have worked to improve the things that these laws want to, uh, to achieve. And also, simplification is just not feasible. We saw that the political dynamics of disclosures is that they always grow, they never shrink. I have an exa another example here, which, is, which comes from, the, from California, but every state has it. This is when this thing of beauty is a collection of disclosures that people get when they buy a car on credit and install it, or lease a car in California. They call it the bed sheet because it's so long. It has something like 17 different boxes at 20, 22 different typefaces and different fonts. Some have different colors, bold, italics, all caps, more than 100 blanks to fill. And, and, and maybe, you know, it's just impossible to read. Now, I've looked at this form. How did it become such monstrous form? It turns out that the first version was in the 1960s, was just one page, very simple. But and then I tracked its growth over the years. Very interesting to see how many of these disclosures, how informed consent documents at the hospital grow in the same way. There is evidence, people study this, and show this growth, this ratchet that's open, never shrinks. So in 50 years of consumer protection in California, what we got is from one page, we got a bed sheet, thank you very much, with uh, 11 places or eight or 11 places to different signatures. It's not helping people, but the point here that I'm making is there is no dynamic to shorten it. Which lawmaker will go on a limb and say, oh, I'm going to eliminate seven out of the eight here. No, they're not necessary. What if somebody will die because they didn't get the, the yeah, right? You understand where it goes. Okay. Um, to wrap up, I will just say there's something about the fact that disclosures are not harmless. And uh, there are many things that disclosures do that are bad. But I want to, I'm particularly concerned about this number four, the delay in, of useful activity. One of, a type of disclosure is, we said, informed consent. Informed consent can be given to people that participate in human subject research, medical research. They cannot do medical research unless you can get people to participate. Because of that, some research cannot be done. For example, emergency room research cannot be done. And there's not been progress, there's no progress in it in the US for decades. Because of that, useful medications arrive in the market sometimes in months, if not years, of delay, because it takes time to recruit people to give them the informed consent that they don't read anyway. And in some, I can give you some kind of horrific, some horrific examples of how many statistical lives are lost because of delay of medicine that is due to an activity that has no upside, and that is the delivery of very long informed consent forms to people who don't read them and, don't, and largely don't care about them. So man, to wrap up, mandated disclosure, I say, is the most common and least successful regulatory technique. It cannot be fixed. It grows and never shrinks and causes unintended harms. So I conclude the book by saying that lawmakers should stop mandating them. Commentators and advocates should stop asking for them unless they can show that this time, with convincing evidence, that this time it's going, it really is different. Thank you.
Uh, well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here at uh, Cato again. And um, thank you, Thea, for uh, putting uh, this together. I think it was really fun to read the book. And I really salute uh, Pro Professor Ben Shahar and uh, compiling all these different examples. And you all really should um, take a look at the, uh, at the book and read it uh, because there are just numerous examples, all in one place, handy reference guide. And I would love to cite it in the future. I think one of the more colorful um, uh, phrases that uh, Professor and his co-author came up with is describing uh, mandatory disclosures, the Lorelei, um, uh, attracting regulators onto the rocks of regulatory failure. And, uh, and that's true. So Lorelei is this rock on the Rhine in Germany, and supposedly there were mermaids or fair-haired maidens who would sing, and the sailors would kind of invariably go against the rocks to their, to their death there um, and drown. So I think it's true, and I, I, uh, he uses with his examples, you know, clearly makes the case that mandatory disclosure is deceptively easy, it's deceptively cheap, and it's deceptively effective. So meaning that it's neither of those three. And it's, um, and I, I can't tell you how many times when I was a commissioner at the SEC, when staff or other people would say to me, oh, even you could support X, Y, and Z because it's only disclosure. It's not really a true uh, regulation. Um, and so, um, but of course, that's uh, not really the case. And I think when uh, it, you discuss Cass Sunstein and others, uh, when they look at um, uh, mandatory disclosures, because it fits a lot of different uh, parts of uh, the American uh, experience. And so they like it because of its, uh, as you uh, mentioned, its libertarian paternalism. Because, you know, it does, it's not uh, command and control. It's, uh, you know, it actually is meant to empower uh, consumers or purchasers or whatever. So it is libertarian in that you can read it or not. You know, I mean, it's kind of up to you. Um, and then it also uh, satisfies the more activist government strains in American culture because government's doing something. They're forcing corporations or whoever um, to uh, actually um, you know, make these disclosures. And then it also um, satisfies the more Puritan strain in us, and meaning in a good way, when the Puritans came over, they believed in education for all, and that uh, this way, this is educating the populace, um, supposedly, if they read it, and that way it advances uh, the polity of the country. So, and then, of course, also the paucity of al real alternatives uh, for some of these things, and you know, you can go down the command and control route, but that, of course, is not always effective. And so a regulator, a legislator, or a judge can feel like he's actually, or she is actually doing something that, um, you know, you're making uh, things better for um, society. But, you know, I think the, the good part of this book as well is that uh, uh, it really looks at thoughtfully at how people actually use information. It focuses on real-life people and real-life uh, situations and real-life decisions and shows how absurd you know, th we have uh, gotten ourselves into this pickle. And when you look at my experience at the Securities and Exchange Commission with the whole rubric of the um, uh, 1933, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and the rest of them, it is founded mainly on uh, disclosure, a disclosure regime, versus what had been prevailing in the states before uh, the 33 and 34 acts, and that was merit regulation, where basically a state bureaucrat would say, you know, I think that this is not a good investment 
for the investors of my state. And one of the, my favorite examples is Apple Computer. So like in the old days, apparently, probably before my time, but anyway, but um, uh, X-rated material, if it was really bad, it was even banned in Boston. Well, Apple Computer was banned in Boston. So a state bureaucrat decided that the watered stock or whatever of Apple Computer made it an in, unsuitable investment for the citizens of Massachusetts. I think Illinois followed suit, maybe even Texas. But the rest of the country, it was okay for investors to invest in Apple Computer. And this was as recently as whenever it went public, it was about 1980 or 81, and my old uh, firm actually worked on that. And I remember when I started hearing all these stories from the folks who had to deal with uh, state uh, regulators. So of course, Apple Computer went off to uh, you know storied um, success. But at least in the IPO, Massachusetts investors uh, could not uh, invest in it, and there were many ways uh, to get around it. But anyway, um, that was at least in um, in theory. So the uh, the the whole purpose of the Securities Act is to empower investors through information. And what I hear more and more from investors, even the largest ones, you know, be uh, the largest uh, asset managers in the country, is that they complain that um, there is just too much information. Um, out there and they get drowned in it. And so what grounds uh, disclosure in the SEC regime is materiality. But uh, so if something's not material, you don't have to disclose it. Um, but if it is material, you do have to disclose it. So then that sets up this whole litigation regime, um, basically where people argue about, you know, was it material or was it not? And that empowers the whole um, uh, uh, the plaintiff's uh, bar there. Congress, unfortunately, in Dodd-Frank and elsewhere, has kind of started to take little chips out of the, the materiality regime. Dodd-Frank, um, one thing that was really crucial to the financial crisis of 08 was the trading in five really important uh, metals out of the Congo. And so Congress uh, went ahead and imposed uh, disclosure on companies uh, about whether they deal in where they get their source their tin, tantalum, cadmium, and a couple other um, obscure minerals, which are important uh, for things like credit cards. So Citibank has to disclose where whether it gets um, these materials from the Congo and, and elsewhere. But anyway, that's just I'm pointing that out. They, Congress is subverting the securities laws to do some other kind of public policies issues. Uh, the SEC, SEC, unfortunately, has followed suit in a couple of cases. And now there's a real drive with respect to um, uh, things like uh, disclosure by corporations of how they uh, money that they give to trade associations and others, where people are claiming that this is you know material for shareholders to um, to know. When in fact, in company after company and in company, shareholders hoot these sorts of disclosure mandates down um, by uh, some three to one or more. So. You know, I think the, the regime is, it builds on itself, and as you point out, nobody really looks at uh, the barnacles that build up on the hull of the ship and scrape them off, and uh, if you let, allow barnacles to build up on the hull of the ship, you really hurt the efficiency of that. And so I think in this case, you hurt the efficiency of the economy of the United States to allow these things to build up and up. So what's the solution that you've been faulted for not actually coming up with uh, solutions, but I think you articulated one there, but I would articulate um, another couple is really trying to define, you know, what is success? 
you know, with respect to disclosures and what is the true cost-benefit analysis and do people really want or need it? And then actually to have a sunsetting provision. So force regulatory agencies to go back and review these disclosures on a periodic basis. And if they don't re-up them uh, after notice and comment, then they should automatically disappear. Jeb Bush actually has suggested some sort of a thing like that. Um, it's sort of a modest proposal, but for every page of the um, federal regula regulations that, uh, um, that agency adds, it needs to take one away if uh, he says if he uh, becomes president. So we'll see what happens there and if something like that will work. So anyway, with that, uh, thank you very much. Look forward to the discussion after. Good afternoon. Um, I need to start with some disclosures. Um, so I'm not here to represent the commission, and uh, my views don't necessarily represent the views of any of the commission or any particular commissioner. Uh, the other disclosure disclaimer I should make is um, I'm not actually in charge of the consumer protection mission for the FTC. I'm in charge of the consumer protection mission for the Bureau of Economics at the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, so I work with. Jessica Rich and her team in the Bureau of Consumer Protection, uh, but I'm not actually in that bureau, in the Bureau of Economics. All right, so having gotten my disclosures out of the way, um, first of all, this was a good read. Um, I highly recommend that if you aren't currently in the uh, disclosure world, if you haven't thought much about what policies might need disclosures or how to do that, uh, the authors do a really good job of laying out all of the complications that would arise in making a disclosure policy. So from that perspective, I think it's great. It's, a, it's also a good read. I enjoyed reading it. Um, that said, I, I'll take a little bit of an issue with maybe how the authors do argue, argue, argue their point. Um, and I don't agree that we should throw it all overboard uh, for reasons that I'll get into in a little bit. Now, I should back up and say, uh, in order to really address this full on, I'd need to write a book. I don't quite have time for that um, now. So I'm going to just kind of pick a particular point, lay it out there, and give you, hopefully, something to think about when you do read this book uh, to keep in mind. All right, so I'm going I'm to cherry pick from their conclusion from my bottom line. Um, and I'm, this is a quote. So disclosure is not always useless. Information can be vital. Mandates may sometimes help. I agree with that. I think that's right. Um, the next sentence, however, I have a little bit more of a problem with, uh, but mandated disclosure is so indiscriminately used with such unrealistic expectations and such unhappy results that it should be presumptively barred. Now, I disagree with some of that, but not all of that. I'm going to leave that a little bit of a mystery. But in general, I don't think we should get rid of disclosure totally. And the reason why has to do with the economics behind why I think disclosures can be useful. So. The goal of disclosures that was laid out in the book is not really the one that I, as an economist, think is the right one for disclosures. So the goal was basically, um, and I paraphrase a little bit, helping people confront unfamiliar and complex decisions and transactions with knowledgeable and interested people. And related to that, they talk about helping you know, make pe have people make the right decisions. And to me, it's not really about having people make the right decisions. If you want a policy that makes people make the right decisions, use command and control. It's more straightforward, right? Just tell people what, what you want them to do. Uh, with disclosure, the idea is you want to give them the information and give them the opportunity 
to make a decision that it fits best with what they want. All right, so let me then give a, an example of what I think a good disclosure is and talk about that in terms of the basic economics of what makes a good disclosure. So there's a potential market failure for a rationally credulous consumer. So a consumer who looks at the information and says, you know what, there's pieces of this I'm just not going to pay attention to because I have other things to worry about. And I think this fits in with the framework that was laid out in the book where he talks about, hey, look, we have this information overload. There's stuff you're just not going to think about. All right, and then there's going to be this uh, asymmetric information problem. So there's four pieces. This is where I wish I had had a slide. Um, so first of all, we want to have information that is costly to, for consumers to collect, to find out. And often we're talking about a case where it's infinitely costly. They just have no access to that information. Secondly, you want to have a case where information is very cheap to the seller. And in the sort of base case, you want information the seller actually already has access to. They don't have to do anything to find that information out. Third, it's got to be salient to the decision. It has to be material in lawyer speak. I'm not a lawyer, but that's what they tell me that means. Um, and it's got to be salient in conflicting ways, right? So the consumer has to want to know that information. It's going to impact their decision probably negatively. Uh, and the seller is going to be in a position not to want to disclose that information because they know that that information is going to uh, impact the value of that product negatively. And lastly, it's got to be rationally overlooked by the consumer. That is, the consumer just has other things to think about. So the authors mentioned termite notice in a very minor um, minor part of the book, but it's a good example of, of what I want to do. Um, so a rough and very back of the envelope, and please don't quote this as having any actual relevance, but, but my quick calculation of uh, the prevalence of homes with termite damage in any particular year is about 0.7%. So something like 99.3% of the homes out there in any given year don't have any termite damage. So that means if I'm shopping for a home, it's probably going to be pretty low on my list of things that I'm going to worry about. Because unless I live in some place like Louisiana, New Orleans, where termites are a lot more prevalent, I've got all sorts of other attributes of the house that I'm going to, going to worry about. And the probability is low enough that it's probably not going to affect the price of houses in my area, at least not very much. The, the risk of termite damage, I should say, isn't going to affect the price very much. OK. so. I would argue that a rational buyer isn't going to pay attention to this. Um, and in the absence of disclosure, then, they're not going to worry about it. So there are many cases where you would think there's an attribute that's salient enough and risky enough that a consumer is actually going to be worried about it. And if a, if a seller doesn't actually say something about that attribute, they might be suspicious, right? So this is the information unraveling effect, for those of you that are familiar with economics um, literature. So in this case, the consumer would ask. The consumer could potentially find out about the termite status of the house. They're going to hopefully have an inspector. Of course, that'll slow down. And if you have a hot market like in, in DC, that may, might mean that you'll miss the house. The inspector may or may not uh, uncover the existence of termite damage. So it's relatively ex expensive for the consumer to find out about the termite damage. And if the seller knows that it's there, and this is what the disclosure is, you have to disclose any knowledge of, of termite damage uh, or termites. Uh, if the seller knows that it's there, it's zero cost to them, effectively, of revealing that information. 
So if no disclosure occurs, there's some probability that that sale is going to take place anyway. And there are two cases. The best case is immediate discovery. Right? You move into the house, you suddenly see uh, the sort of uh, wood flakes all over the place and realize there's, there's termites. There, the injury would be different, the difference in the price that you would have paid had you realized that this damage was there. Um, and you're probably not going to get that back. Right? The cost of recovering that uh, in terms of legal fees and so forth is probably going to be uh, higher than whatever that cost difference is. The worst case is delayed discovery. You move into your house, a year goes by, and suddenly you realize that the termite damage is much worse. So that damage is likely, in both cases, to be a lot more than the cost of transferring the information at the point of sale. So this is a case where the information really isn't that complex. Right? We, I, I absolutely agree with the book that trying to convey the kinds of voluminous and complex information to make informed consent is really, really hard. But mandatory disclosure doesn't always have to be that hard. And so I think a little bit more work needs to be done to try to determine what exactly are the set of disclosures that maybe should be reformed, at least, or perhaps not thrown out, uh, but taking a closer look at. And those that we can say, nope, that actually fits with the economic model really well, it's a, it's a real clear case. Now, I do think that we're coming at this from sort of opposite sides of the uh, of the problem to the same place in that the professor calls for cost-benefit analysis, but presumptively no uh, mandatory disclosure, and I would argue for a little bit more caution, but still wanting to have that same kind of cost-benefit analysis to determine, is it an appropriate place to have a disclosure policy here? All right, I'm going to uh, end on kind of a harmonious note. I will say, um, I think that there's a little bit uh, conflation of mandatory disclosures and what you might call precautionary disclosures coming from the court system. Um, as an economist, I don't see those things as the same thing, but maybe as a, as a lawyer, they're, they're a little closer than, um, than I think. Um, but it certainly feeds into the feeling that there is this information overload, and it's very, very difficult for consumers to pick out the particular pieces of information that are actually going to help them in a the marketplace. Um, the last thing I'll say on a, on a harmonious note is um, I agree that there's often a different underlying market failure that needs to be addressed rather than the, um, rather than the information asymmetry. So one of the cases that the authors talk about is in terms of financial analysts or, or mortgage brokers. And you're supposed to disclose that, hey, you know what, I actually have an interest in this. And depending on what you do, I might make a lot of money. Um, that It's not really the information asymmetry the way I've talked about it with the disclosure that's the problem. There's a principal agent problem there that's a little bit more complex, or a lot more complex. Uh, and so if you're looking for a regulatory solution, you might want to dig a little bit deeper. And I'll end there. Thank you. So I'm going to ask uh, Professor Ben Shahar to return to the podium and just give a quick response to the commentary we've heard. Um, and then we'll be opening the floor up to questions before we get to the question part, please be sure to wait for to be called on by me uh, before asking your question. Please wait for our microphone. Even if you feel like the whole room can hear you, we also are live web. We have a live webcast. We want people uh, watching on their computers to be able to hear you as well. Um, so I'll turn that over to 
the professor. Well, thank you. Thank you for these thoughtful comments. And um, I, I, you know, I, I take the disharmonious and discordant notes uh, well because I feel that at the core, they accept the main point of the book, that disclosures are not working and have very hard time. It's going to be very hard to make them work. And yet, you know, but maybe at the periphery of the problem, we can nibble at it and make some find some places where it, there is some there. So in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that it's not, you know, the entire, the, the main thesis is not rejected. Uh, to uh, Commissioner Atkins' p uh, point, uh, thinking I'll take one thing from what you said, uh, I kind of liked and agreed with most of what uh, uh, you, you told us, but you, it, you raised the issue of what then? If disclosures don't work, what, what do you propose? And you kind of understood why the book like this cannot offer a solution, because the whole point is, we argue, there is no one-size-fits-all panacea. You know, the bloodletting of 19th century medicine that solves all, cures all ills. No, if it, that doesn't work, if you set that aside, now you have to have the, the slow and dirty and difficult and frustrating work of finding tailored individual solutions to different problems. So, of course, I can't say what will work for everything in all the problems of society, because all the problems are currently, or such a large you know, subset of them, are addressed by disclosure. Um, I am a little skeptical about sunset provisions in this context. I kind of want the sun not to rise. <laughs> I think there's, what's the point? We know where it has been going. And I've, you know, so I think that once we get disclosures in motion and kind of as a solution, when they don't work, the instinct is to fix them. And there is an incredible amount of in, in, ingenious academic and intellectual effort these days on finding ways to make disclosures work. It's kind of the pet project of a lot of smart people in American law schools to fix disclosures use, using you know, ingenuity. First, a lot of this has been tried. For many one who think they don't realize it, it has been tried. But, but I'm not going to go back to the theme before. It's just that I feel that the sunset provisions, sunset approach is not a, 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 is going to be a fig leaf, leaf for for a continued effort to improve. As to Dr. Stiver's uh, point, a, a example of disclosures that are necessary, I take the point, and I'll talk about the, the, the premise, uh, or the, the, the general defense, and then the example of termites. I don't disagree that there is a theoretical case in favor of disclosure. For an economist, it is asymmetric information. For an autonomist, a person, a philosopher who thinks about individual autonomy, it's res giving respect to individual. Every, in fact, every discipline has its own justification for disclosure. That's not, I, I see this as the problem, that right? nobody challenges the paradigm. The, but the, 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 what my concern is that it's hard to find examples where the solution of giving people information works, be, not because it's not theoretically valid, but because it is not effective uh, in, in application. Now, yes, people can understand termite. They want to know about termites. And if you tell them, so, you know, I'm going to sell you the house, but I have to tell you, uh, there are termites in there. Uh, the price, I therefore give you 5% discount or something. They can understand that. And they want to be told. But it's not going to happen. 
And because it's not going to happen, buyers are going to make do the inefficient solution of doing the of trying to figure out this information on their own. And in many states, the standard closing phase for a home is to have you know, contingencies, right? And one is to do financial, and another is house inspection, and another is termite. Even in a place like Illinois, where we don't have a lot of termites, as say in Louisiana, that is what it is, do is done because the first best, the sellers disclosing, is not feasible. They are not going to disclose, and they are going to be effective in hiding the fact that they knew. And I teach, and I taught, you, Ms. Knight, in first year cases about termites and how hard it is to show that the seller knew. Because of course they'll want to hide their knowledge. They, they will not want to know, right? And, and so it is I, the, a rule that would say disclose termite is not going to work. And therefore, the solution, the second base, is for people to find it on their own. And you see here, the law doesn't intervene, and the market works and termites are inspected and resolved one way or another. Anyway, I don't want to bicker too much about this. I think that I, the, the, the point is that I want to say in, in def, kind of in defense of the thing is that I, I like the, you know, the, 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 the idea that disclosures fit the economic module of solving problems of asymmetric information is, un, is uncontroversial. And I view it, again, not to be part of the defense, but part of the problem of disclosure, that they are so plausible that we cannot resist them. Thank you. Um, so now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Uh, please, when you're called on, give your name and affiliation. It's just helpful. Um, so do we have any questions from anybody? in the back there. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Brian Knight. I, I hope that isn't why I got called on first. <laughs> but uh, so it, it seems like one of the problems that, that is coming up in discussing disclosures is that we're trying to preempt the problem, to prevent it from occurring rather than sorting it out afterwards. Um, and that there that sets up something of a of a market failure among regulate you know regulators or among policymakers because as was mentioned regulation is relatively or, or disclosure is in some respects relatively cheap. Um, trying to find a solution is is a better solution just letting the tort system uh, sort it out afterwards because presumably the number of, to take the the, the termite, termite example. Relatively few homes are going to have termites. So from a sort of social perspective, we may be better off having relatively few tort cases with payments and, and maybe even establish something where there is a multiplier effect for intentionally withholding information, sort of like we do with UDAP, where there, there may be a three times value to make it worth the buyer suing. But keeping the cost contained to the parties there rather than a global cost through mandatory disclosure. Thoughts? Well, I think uh, I think that's a, a good point. And again, I mean, looking to whenever you impose mandatory disclosure, you know, and I think the point of the book is that it is deceptively easy, deceptively cheap. 
um, that you are creating, you know, barriers to entry, um, basically, and there somebody has to pay for this, and maybe in the termite case, you know, that is more, um, you know, specific. But under common law, you had the kind of the same uh, end result as mandatory disclosures. But uh, you would, uh, if you knew of something and and were deceptive in in not uh, disclosing it. But I think you know we we do have to remember that ultimately the consumer, the investor, whoever pays for all of this uh, disclosure in either um, you know higher prices or of course uh, you know less competition, which results in higher prices. So it ultimately comes to the same thing. But uh, the SEC, um, when I was uh, as a staffer in the early '90s, the Chairman Breeden, you know, we tried to. Uh, make the burden a little bit less on small businesses and, and to try to allow, um, you know, management of companies to what we call free writing, you know, to write a perspective, just prospectus in longhand to present their case to investors without ha supposedly having to go through uh, batteries of lawyers. I'm not sure how well that worked and it's been kind of peeled back over the years. But anyway, but, uh, you know, time and time again, you know, once these things get in and then start growing like barnacles, you know, government tries to come in and make it better uh, because they realize, you know, the the unintended consequences. So, I, you know, I think your point's well taken. John in the back. John Samples, Cato Institute. Mandated disclosures also widespread in uh, politics, particularly in election context. Uh, there's been recent, there was, it was also in the SEC at one time for uh, corporate disclosure of political activities after Citizens United. There's now uh, proposals to require places like the Cato Institute to disclose C3s, to disclose their donors. Uh, it would seem that at least some of the same problems that you mentioned with mandated disclosure also apply to those kinds of electoral and political disclosure in that, for example, I know of no evidence that they actually do things that the Supreme Court says mandated disclosure serve the purposes that it's supposed to serve. Uh, do you treat uh, these kinds of issues in the book and do your conclusions uh, comport with what I just said? Yes, this is a great question. I, I, yeah, I mentioned this in several contexts. For example, the Citizens United case said we don't need to regulate, to place actual caps, actual command and control regulation on campaign financing because there is disclosure. So here's a strong example of how disclosure replaces regulation. Now you can debate whether it's necessary or not, but the, it is uh, other regulatory approaches are set aside because we're comfortable, at least the Supreme Court said they're comfortable with disclosure. Now, sometimes these disclosures, political disclosures, are, are useless, are meaningless. It's not, they're not going to affect, they're not going to sanitize or, or be anti-corruption in any meaningful way. Uh, but sometimes they are loud and clear, and in fact, they have excessive effect. So, you know, some things can be made very clear to people doesn't mean the problem with disclosure, it's not always that people don't look at it and don't know. Sometimes they look at it, but they don't give it the right, they're not expert enough to understand it. Take another example, the debate over, this, over mandating uh, GMO labels on foods. Why does big, ag big agra and big food do not like it? Not because they say, oh, you know, it's costly to put a label. They don't like it because they, know, they are correct to think that people will be overly, you know, will, will overreact to that that most consumers do not fully understand the 
full picture of the va social value and social cost of GMO food, and we'll view this as a warning and we'll not eat what something that is, you know, we'll make bad decisions. And so uh, the f disclosures here might be bad for a different reason, for the fact that they shine excessive light on only part of the problem and distort the overall decision. Yeah, I wanted to jump in on that too because I think it's a really important point, but it shows how you know, disclosing or disclosure regime, which is supposedly in the name of uh, investors in the case that you were citing with respect to uh, forcing um, either institutions or corporations uh, to disclose uh, their donors or what they, in the case of corporations, spend their money on. And there are 10 law professors a few years ago petitioned the SEC to uh, do just that, require corporations to disclose um, uh, what they do with their money with respect to trade associations. I think it's extremely dangerous, but it also shows exactly that, you know, this stuff is being politicized now, and there is a goal, um, especially in this disclosure case, uh, to name and shame. So they know that, uh, you know, shareholders, again, you know, at, and this was mentioned in the Citizens United case by Justice Kennedy, that, you know, if shareholders want to know something about what corporations do, well, they, you know, there's a corporate governance regime and they can, you know, try to petition their management to do it, even though it's not material or whatever. Well, as I said before, that shareholders repeatedly, in company after company, hoot these things down by three to one votes. They have, not one has ever passed. Um, you know, in a Fortune 250 uh, company, and so, um, so which is what people measure. But anyway, but um, it's uh, you know, but it shows how the stuff is now a drive is to do have normative and other sorts of goals that have nothing at all to do with the actual supposed disclosure because they know a it's costly, b it can uh, be used then to embarrass people just because it's disclosed. We've seen it. The Mozilla CEO was, you know, basically thrown out of his company because he gave to something that was, you know, deemed politically incorrect uh, by, you know, uh, whatever his, you know, users of his uh, company. So, I mean, so those sorts of things are, are also uh, referred to in Justice Kennedy in Citizens United. For example, uh, New York Times v. Sullivan, the NAACP in Alabama back in the 60s, uh, you know, Alabama passed a law to, you know, require uh, them to uh, disclose their donors, knowing that you know people wouldn't do it because they'd be scared to death and have their house burned down or whatever. So disclosure can be a real problem um, and not just a benefit. So let me jump in a little bit. I mean, I think it's interesting that we've we've kind of hit both sides now, and we've hit both sides in thinking, well, consumers just aren't making good decisions, right? We said they're not making good decisions because they're not paying attention to our disclosures, and now we're saying. Well, they're not making good decisions because they are paying attention to our disclosures, right? So I think some of the problem across the board here is that we're, we're combining the information that people might need to make decisions with ideas about what the right decisions are. So one of the good examples, I think, of, of a right decision or wrong decision, maybe, um, that from a consumer standpoint is completely rational is has to do with the Alar and Apple's case of 15 years ago. So this, to refresh your memory a little bit, uh, there was some very unsubstantiated uh, uh, information put out about the cancer effects of a particular uh, chemical that was sprayed on apples. And the consumer response was to stop eating apples. This is absolutely 
the right response if you're a consumer because frankly the substitutability of bananas and grapes and all the other fruit are really it's really easy right why would you eat apples if there's any risk at all now from a economy-wide perspective this wasn't so great because the producers can't flip on a dime and start making bananas um, but you know I want us to be a little bit careful in this discussion not to assume from any perspective that we know better than the consumers what the best decision for them is Megan Gray, I had a question for Professor Ben-Shahar about what I call asterisk disclosures. So it's not the long disclosures, it's, for example, on a website when you're signing up and uh, you're agreeing to pay a fee and then you see an asterisk <coughs> that says, leads you down to a footnote style that says includes $5 shipping and handling or uh, cancellation must occur within 60 days. And it's simple, it's unadorned, it's un, uh, uh, uncluttered. Do you think those types of mandatory disclosures are also uh, a complete failure? Yes. And uh, you know, this, this is an example of fine print, right? You get a very large <laughs> voluntary statement, not mandated, free phone or some other promotional uh, things that we, and then the asterisk. Actually, there are fees here, taxes. Eh? Now, why why does it, why is it done in this way? We we understand why is it done with this way. The the asterisk is something that the firms don't want to disclose, but they have to. Otherwise, there will be it will be fraud. It will be deceptive, and uh, rightly so. They're giving you the wrong information about price or other aspects of the quality. The problem is that the asterisk information that is asterisked is not as prominent and read, and this is like many other, other kinds of disclaimers, right? Here's what this will do, asterisk actually not exactly, only under some conditions, um, and uh, if it were to be completely effective, I don't think firms would, add, would use that, this kind of promo packaged promotion, but they expect that the asterisk, and they correctly expect the, this information that is in the fine print in very small font at the bottom, will not be seen with the same amount of detail. So what's going on here? There is a component of the information that is not mandated disclosure. It's a different species. It's advertising. It's voluntary disclosure. And then there is a concern that this will be fraudulent or deceptive. So it, there is a mandated element. If you put, if you say something there, you will not be liable. We mandate that you do it so as not to be liable, just like informed consent. F give people information so they will not be liable. That element is not effective. Is not, uh, the, and there is. There have been a lot of studies about disclaimers in various areas, including both statistical and experimental, and it's very disappointing. It does not provide the information that to some of the sophisticated people in this room who read the asterisk and the fine print might seem obvious, but it is not to most consumers, and therefore I think it's not an effective uh, precaution against fraud. Herb Rose, um, it, uh, Professor Ben Shahar. It sounds like you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because you don't want any disclosure. You don't think any of it does any good. Um, no, I don't think there's very much discussion how we got to this point. And probably uh, litigation has caused most of the 
uh, disclosures that we see today. And I don't know whether having no disclosures would increase, I haven't really thought it through, would increase or decrease the amount of litigation that we have. But uh, what do you do about uh, uh, the people who read uh, a label and it says nothing about uh, containing peanuts or may contain peanuts or something like that? Uh, they have children. They're concerned about it. Um, maybe their child has never shown any allergy towards peanuts. Uh, but it sounds to me like without that some disclosure there, uh, you may have a lot of children getting very, very sick and being rushed to hospitals. Uh, and then I am concerned about, uh, uh, well, I would prefer to have uh, disclosure. And I, I admit that although I have a background in science and I have some background in law that even with that background I wouldn't be able to understand a lot of the disclosures that exist. Um, and I might not want to read all of it either but I'd like to be given that choice. Uh, so why shouldn't someone have the choice of reading it? I mean we, we go through uh, political campaigns where we see that the results don't satisfy an awful lot of people several years after the campaign and after the people are elected. Well, some people will never go any further to dig out some information which might change their views. So I believe in more information rather than less information. Uh, I'd welcome your comments. Yeah, thank you. It's an excellent question. And I want to clarify one thing. More than you wanted to know is not against information. Information is great. We want information, and information is valuable, and people know how to use it and enjoy it. Google will not be worth the gazillion amount that it's valued if it, you know, we, unless all it provides is information. We like to read books and baseball box scores and what, what have you because we enjoy information and we shop for it and look for it and we know what to do with it. What the book is about is a particular form of regulation that requires particular types of information in particular situations so as to avoid liability. And this is information that the sophisticated party would have and they have to give it to the other side. And even though it, it is, as I said, consistent with a lot of good ideas, it is, in my view, and based on how I read the evidence, it is not working. It's not effective and for the various reasons uh, that I that I mentioned. Now you say you, you like in, to be given the information, the choice to read. I think that in that sense, that does not reflect the experience of many people, the sociological experience of many people when they are confronted with disclosure. I think that the most common example is, ah, whatever. They're giving this to me because they're covering their you-know-what. That's what people think about disclosures. They do not rec recognize it as a moment of enhanced or bolstered the autonomy of respect and dignity. They view this very correctly uh, in, a, in a very skeptical way, if not worse. Now, what about you asking the question, you started by asking, what about dangerous products? What about things we need to know how to avoid dangers? Absolutely. I think that there is something about very important about the duty to warn in a, a tort law, including who warn about allergens in food. The problem is that that duty to warn was subsumed by the notion of full disclosure. You have to warn about everything. And then 
it becomes so overloaded that it is less effective. Now I recognize that yes, people who are allergic to something will will go through the the many um, warnings to find the one that is relevant to them. But I can imagine that a, a different world, not of full disclosure, where just the important things are brought out either because firms know that if they don't warn people, they don't give them the information, people will not buy these things, or a regime not of full disclosure, but of the true underlying dangerousness of the, you know, the, that, uh, of a product. It's a little bit more, the, the argument is a little bit more nuanced and is developed in the book, but that's my basic approach to the problem. If I could chime in on that. I mean, it's really, a, there is a bit of a commons problem here, right? I mean, it's really cheap for a firm uh, or government to put out another disclaimer or, or disclosure, um, but all of the, the costs of sorting that information, you know, all funnels down to you. So I think this idea that uh, the book talks about in terms of oversupply is a real problem that I'm not certain there's a good solution. Yeah, and just to throw in as well, you know, again, on the sort of the nerdy uh, financial side, uh, you know, where investors are presented information and the SEC has, you know, detailed regs to uh, talk about uh, financial information, accounting information and whatnot. So um, we rely on agents, you know, or investors, many, especially retail investors, rely on agents, be them uh, analysts on Wall Street or whatnot, to parse through these hundreds of pages of you know very thin type and all the financial gobbledygook that is uh, disclosed by corporations um, and then bake that analysis into the price you know with all the buying and selling that goes on in the marketplace but you know at the same time as things have become more complex and I told you how even the largest investor asset manager in the United States I had um, one of their head people complain to me about how much garbage there is that they have to sort through and it drowns out the good information. So again, this goes back to you know what's mandated and what's not. Companies then have re have reacted, and they're fr free to uh, put in pro forma financial statements and others that you know uh, differ from uh, what they um, have to disclose under SET, SEC uh, mandates. And it's okay as long as you know you hope it doesn't contradict, and it better not, and it better not be deceptive. But uh, that's um, you know that's where the market um, is forcing. But ultimately, if if you look at, for example, the percentage of participation of retail investors in the United States, it has plummeted in the last um, 20 or 30 years. It used to be more than half. And now because of, I would argue, because of all this mandated disclosure, people have uh, you know, uh, recoiled and say, there is no way I can ever function in this marketplace. I have to rely on the big boys. And so that's good for money market, for mutual funds and, and other um, sorts of collective investment schemes. So that's uh, you know, good for them and they provide a, a very valuable service. But again, the, the day of the retail investor being in the marketplace uh, by himself is, uh, you know, I think, uh, past. We have time for one more question. If you had another question. I wonder, Megan Gray, I wonder if the audience for these disclosures, if it's not really supposed to be for consumers, if really the market for the disclosures are for investigator journalists 
or for trade publications, for the people who are going to uh, compare across the industry or dig into uh, the fine print and in that way bring to the forefront information that really would be helpful. Um, does that prism change at all the value of mandated disclosures? That's another great question. Uh, and in my view, no, I have a chapter on this in the book. Uh, first, you have, to, you have to understand many disclosures that we cover, that the book covers, are not market disclosures where market intermediaries can assess them, but are personalized disclosures that have to be given to people like at the, at the clinic, right, or at, the, at the, the, the health disclosures. There, there is no, uh, uh, no way to aggregate it through some kind of professional intermediary broker, for example. But in some contexts there is, like the securities markets, where we know that the retail investors don't read the disclosures, but they don't need to. The, the, the institutional investors do, or the brokers or the investment bankers do. They trade on the basis of the information. The information is then reflected in the price, and everybody else is getting the value as if they read the, and they don't need to do this. That's a very good argument, but I, arg but I don't view it as a good defense of mandated disclosure. Imagine what would happen in a world without mandated disclosure, but with the presence of these sophisticated intermediaries that look and want and know what to do with the information. They will not buy securities of companies that do not tell them what's going on. There will be disclosure, but there will not be, does not have to be mandated. You know, if uh, Goldman Sachs can, can tell to companies, we have you know, a big stash of cash, we want to buy securities, but only to those companies that are willing to warrant the information. Not only disclose it, but disclose it as a warranty. Um, and you can do that. And in fact, I think that that's kind of happening anyway. There is the mandated disclosures, but the really sophisticated companies want to know more than that. And they probably do get privatized, pri personalized disclosures based on their purchasing power. So this happens, this information unraveling process happens anyway when there is a sophisticated user of information who knows to demand for it, and therefore we need disclosure, but we doesn't, it doesn't have to be mandated. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to our panel members, and uh, thank you to all of you for your questions. We have copies of the book for sale outside in the lobby, as well as copies of our uh, magazine, Regulation, that, as I said, includes an article by Professor Ben-Shahar. Um, and we also will have refreshments just upstairs in the Winter Garden lobby. Thank you so much. Thank you.